Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to 1956, episode 1.15. This here is the final episode of our first phase in the series, and a huge thanks must go out to all of you who have gotten in touch over the last few weeks to let me know you've enjoyed this revitalization of this fascinating series. It seems this second go-round of 1956 initially caught you by surprise, but now many episodes are available with many more to come, and it seems like most of you have caught up through some excessive binging, so well done and welcome. We are far from finished with the story of 1956 just yet, so make sure you tune in next time when we begin our coverage of the different roads which led in time to the Suez Crisis. Here, though, we still have some important and fascinating aspects of the Hungarian Revolution to cover. While we watched the whole thing come apart last time, we didn't spend as much time as I would have liked, examining what other powers thought of the Hungarian episode. In this episode, then, we'll not only look at how the event was portrayed in different countries, including some Eastern Bloc ones, we'll also finish the story of Imre Naj and company, and we'll look at Hungary for the first time from the perspective of the United States, where President Eisenhower was increasingly distracted by the upcoming election, and, oh yeah, that little scuffle going down in Egypt. The story of Hungary teaches us an important lesson regarding Soviet policy. Hungary was to prove the nail in the coffin of leftist mobilisation under the Soviet banner. While Budapest was crushed, the Hungarians became the critical ingredient in the undermining of Soviet influence in the West. Such a fact was only a consolation prize to those Hungarians who were now faced with a return to the old ways. But it was a fact nonetheless, and an important watershed moment in Soviet history. If you're ready then to tackle our final episode in this part of the story, let's get into it as I take you to the first week of November, 1956. With overwhelming force, the Soviets had begun their crushing of the Hungarian people from the early hours of the 4th of November. Imre Naj had moved to a new Yugoslav exile in the heart of the city, but his supporters 
were not all in a position to find an island of foreign soil to retreat to. Major General Bela Kerali had been instrumental in helping to establish and then to lead Hungary's National Guard. The National Guard had been formed largely to bring all the disparate elements of the revolution together and to disarm and instill a measure of calm in the immediate aftermath of the revolution in the last few days of October. As such, it was easily classified as a revolutionary institution, and its members were hunted by the Soviet military and KGB, who, of course, followed the Soviet invasion into Hungary. Karali had a terrible choice to make. Did he engage in a doomed battle with hopeless odds, or did he try and find some kind of solution to his problem which didn't involve violence? The lives of so many of his men, not to mention the more senior members of the National Guard, were at stake. He already knew that the Minister of Defence, Palma Leader, had been tricked and then captured by the Soviets, so any notion of trusting them was out of the question. In the days before, Karali had moved his headquarters to a monastery on Freedom Hill, a high point which overlooked the city. From this vantage point, we imagine that Karali and his men could see the smoke rising from the gutted buildings as unrestricted destruction was the official policy of the Soviet soldiers. This time, if rebels were spotted, the buildings they cowered in were brought down on top of them. There was no policy of trying to preserve the city from destruction, as there had been first time round. Groups of people caught out in the open could be strafed and attacked by fighter jets, leaving few places to hide in the war-torn city. Corelli knew that he and his men had no answer for such tactics. They were a few thousand enthusiasts and conscripts facing... 15 Soviet divisions and thousands of tanks. Resistance was pointless, and it would certainly result in defeat either way. On Friday the 7th of November then, Corali talked with his officers of the National Guard, who were instructed to speak freely. One man, General Daniel Georgieni, argued that they should arrange a truce with the Soviets, but Corali believed this was naive and impossible. Why would the Soviets stop now that they had every advantage? Corali spoke to the men that were assembled, saying... At this point, everyone must listen to their own conscience. If somebody tries to save something that is salvageable, that is laudable. If someone wants to, he should. If someone decides to take a road that leads straight to the West, that is also acceptable. I now ask all those who want to join General Georgieni to leave immediately. Let us not stand on ceremony or be emotional. Those who want to go should go, but right away. Just under half of his men left for various destinations. The rest formed a command unit and planned to resist for as long as was possible. Later, reflecting on this scene, Corali remembered the following. They felt, even if further fighting seemed in the final outcome hopeless, that they not be willing to place their arms or themselves at the mercy of Soviet troops. Even if it does not sound heroic, I have to say that I did not keep the command together in order to organise a guerrilla war or to prolong Hungarian suffering with stubborn warfare. My only aim was that, if Imre Naj did make an acceptable compromise, there would be some sort of organisation upon which he could rely. That's why I was willing to fight on to keep the Supreme Command alive until such a moment arrived. Corali had no deficiency in the bravery department, and he did fight on for another few days before the situation became untenable. He was opposed to the idea of needless deaths for no gain, including his own death, as he later recalled when explaining his decision to leave Hungary alongside hundreds of thousands of his countrymen. While the first death sentence passed on me was not carried out, there would be another one and it would be executed. 
there are times when a soldier has to sacrifice his life for his duty. On the other hand, if they want to kill you, and absolutely no tangible result would come of it, why run the risk? Some might call such a perspective cynical, but it was one which had been actively advised by Imre Naj. He had instructed those who could leave to do so in the days before, and technically speaking, he had also left the country, even if he was only in the Yugoslav embassy. Martyrdom was evidently not as potent a political weapon in a society dominated by the threat of Soviet force, and where, in the subsequent years, even the mention of the late Imre Naj was forbidden. Janusz Kadar returned to Budapest on the 7th of November, with gunfire still ringing out in the distance. Of paramount concern to the Soviet-supported Kadar was getting the country back on track and restoring order. The Hungarian people might be militarily defeated, but they were not spiritually broken, and for the next few weeks, intermittent strikes were called which decimated Kadar's credibility in the eyes of his Soviet betters. Since he was constantly being shadowed by the same two KGB agents at all times, for his own protection of course, Kadar knew that it was imperative that he crush these signs of opposition and restore the status quo, lest he be replaced by another candidate. While he was the public face of the Hungarian Peasant and Workers' Party, Kadar knew that true power was held by the Russians, who had invaded in force and now proceeded to round up as many harmful elements as they could. Several individuals were tricked into leaving places of safety before being arrested by foreign KGB agents, often with old friends as the people that persuaded them to leave. Already in custody was Pal Melider, Naj's Minister of Defence, and many other members of his old cabinet were systematically rounded up as well. Melider maintained his composure well throughout, as one of his peers in government, later arrested and housed with him, recalled. Melider behaved with dignity. He gave a dressing down to a KGB guard in fluent Russian who was not showing him sufficient respect. Stand at attention. It's the Minister of Defence of a Socialist country that you have the honour to push into this cell, he said. Rumours circulated widely throughout November that the Soviets were deporting thousands of citizens to Siberia. In reality, though, it was more like hundreds, and it was only to Ukraine, and the citizens were soon returned as the Soviets characteristically enough, deported these individuals before sufficient organisation had been prepared in the places that they were being sent. Many had been arrested simply because they'd been captured near people fighting. You could be buying bread in a street next to the place the people were fighting, and Soviet soldiers could happen across you and decide to arrest you because they had the power to do so. What was true, though, and discussed with far less fear, was the issue of escape. For many families, the notion of a returning Soviet presence felt like too much to bear. A great number of Hungarians, some 200,000, moved west out of the country over the next few months. For a while, this exodus was almost encouraged as a way of getting the troublemakers out. After a few months of this human drainage, though, Kadar came to realise that he was losing some of his best and brightest citizens, and the border was reinforced and guarded. Hungarian emigres, some of whom would write and contribute masterfully to the Western literature on the Cold War over the next few years, settled comfortably in the United States, which accepted 150,000, and in Britain and France, who each accepted over 20,000 in their time. Although officially the border was closed in spring 57, the exodus obviously never completely halted. To Naj, the experiment in independent democratic government was over. It was now back to the old ways, yet 
He could not believe, at first, that the Soviets would actually harm him. Having withdrawn to the comparative safety of the Yugoslav embassy, following a prearranged offer, Naj became something of a diplomatic thorn in Tito's side, as we saw last time, because he repeatedly refused to bow to Tito's efforts, and the efforts of Tito's intermediaries, to admit his own errors and to recognise Qatar's government. Last time we looked at Tito's involvement in this affair, and we concluded that the Yugoslav leader gained a great deal of political notoriety for treading the third way, hazardous as it could occasionally be. By the end of November, though, even Tito seemed to be tiring of the exercise, and it was on the 21st of November that he received a letter from Kadar insisting that the current Hungarian government had no intentions of harming Naj. The letter deserves to be quoted purely because of how manifestly false it turned out to be. Janusz Kadar wrote, In order to settle this affair, the Hungarian government repeats herewith the assurances already given several times by word of mouth that it has no desire to punish Imre Naj and the members of his group in any way for their past activities. We therefore expect the asylum granted by the Yugoslav embassy to be withdrawn and that its members will return to their homes. In the backdrop of this correspondence, Tito was coming under increasing pressure and criticism from the Soviets and Chinese for his decision, and while he had given many reasons over the three-week stay for his decision to refrain from evicting Naj, he thought it prudent to make it clear publicly where he stood. Tito said during a speech on the 22nd of November that If Imre Naj's government had been more energetic, if it had not always vacillated instead of taking a strong stand against the chaos and against the fact that communists were killed by reactionaries, if it had energetically opposed reaction, then perhaps things could have been straightened out and perhaps the intervention of the Soviet army could have been avoided. But what did Imre Naj do? He asked people to take weapons against the Soviet army and asked the Western countries for help. This intervention was exploited enormously by the West. We have to protect the Qatar government and give it help. I can tell you that I know the men who are now the members of the new government and, in my opinion, they represent the most honest forces of Hungary. From Tito we see the threads of a story being pulled together, which would later be parroted by the Chinese in their January visit to Eastern Europe. Naj had been impotent. He had not been able to control the revolutionaries, who had resorted to violence and killed innocent communists. The example always given was the massacre of 23 such communists and AVU personnel on the 31st of October, accompanied, as it was here, by the insistence that once affairs had reached a certain desperate point for Naj's regime, only the invasion of Soviet forces could have forcibly put down such a dangerous and unstable state of affairs. In such a way was the Soviet invasion of Hungary justified, and the clearly excessive Soviet reaction explained. The idea that Naj could be presented as having at hand through his own negligence and complicity with the rebels, yet then expect any kind of clemency, may appear ludicrous to us, especially given what we know about how the Soviets treated enemies. Yet, Naj did not seem to accept that he was truly in any kind of danger for some time. Eventually, on the evening of the 22nd of November, tired of the Yugoslav denunciations and living the life of an exile, Naj arranged with 41 of his followers in the embassy to leave the building. He was told that he would be allowed to go home and that he would not be bothered. He even told his family that he would come home in time for dinner that evening. Incredibly enough, considering how terribly the Soviets treated other rebellious elements, Imre Naj believed that he wouldn't be arrested because Kadar had told him so. 
He and several others got onto a bus waiting outside the embassy, and just as the engine revved up and the bus was about to close its doors, KGB officers jumped on board. Behind the bus appeared an unmarked car, and the bus was directed to a military school on the edge of a city, where all involved would be out of sight and out of mind of the Hungarian people. It was here that Imre Naj's long stint in captivity began. For the next year and a half after he was spirited away in late November 1956, Hungarians never knew whether Naj was alive or dead. He moved from prison to prison as Khrushchev attempted to delay the trial amidst efforts to improve relations with the West. All the while, Kadar remained insistent that the trial proceed and that Naj be executed. It was not because Kadar was especially bloodthirsty, instead it was because Kadar wished to remove any potential challengers to his position. So long as Naj lived, Kadar believed he would never be totally secure as the leader of Hungary. Finally, in June 1958, Khrushchev permitted the trial to go ahead at last. The last 18 months had been a long, hard slog for Naj, but he never relented or gave in to the Soviet demands. Naj was not tortured, but he was encouraged at regular intervals to beg for clemency and to recognise Kadar's government for the sake of some undisclosed reward. Naj was no longer in a trusting mood. He now had accepted and come to terms with what the Soviets planned to do with him, and he was determined that it should not be an easy process. During his trial over the 9th to 15th of June 1958, Naj resolutely refused to cooperate, calling out the legal processes for the sham that they were. Naj denied all charges put to him, and vehemently denied that he'd ever attempted to overthrow the state. When addressed as the former Prime Minister, Naj insisted that he was still the Prime Minister of Hungary, since he had not been replaced through any legitimate processes. In his last words to the court on the 15th of June 1958, Imre Naj issued the following ringing declaration. I have twice tried to save the honour and image of communism in the Danubian Valley, once in 1953 and again in 1956. Rakoshi and the Russians prevented me from doing so. If my life is needed to prove that not all communists are enemies of the people, I gladly make the sacrifice. I know that there will one day be another Naj trial which will rehabilitate me. I also know that I will have a reburial. I only fear that the funeral oration will be delivered by those who have betrayed me. On the 16th of June 1958, Imre Naj, Palma leader and a few others were hanged, their bodies cut down and buried without ceremony in the corner of the prison yard. They were buried face down and wrapped in tar paper to make identification of their bodies more difficult, but four years later they were dug up and reburied in a remote corner of this Moscow's prison's graveyard, which had traditionally been reserved for hardened criminals. Their graves were unmarked, and to drive the point home further, their relatives were forbidden from attending to their graves until the late 1980s. Incidentally, you might not be surprised to learn, Naj proved correct. He was reburied shortly after being acquitted of his bogus crimes. 31 years to the day of his hanging, on the 16th of June, 1989, Naj's coffin was reburied in a ceremony attended by as many as 100,000 Hungarian citizens. By this point, the trappings of the Communist Party were fraying. By October 23, 1989, the Republic of Hungary would be proclaimed. It was no accident that the decision was made to proclaim the new republic 33 years to the day that the students had first taken to the streets of Budapest and had set in motion such an incredible, tragic and captivating series of events.
Yanis Kadar would cling to power until 1988, by which time he had become practically senile, a symbol of the old order which was in desperate need of replacement. While he couldn't teach his peers anything in 1988, the example of Hungary in 1956 proved especially important for both Poland and Romania. In the first case, Gomułka and the citizens of Poland realised and then accepted something which the Hungarians never did. The limited reform within the communist Soviet umbrella was as far as was possible to go in the current circumstances. Vladislav Gomułka clung to power for the next 15 years in Poland based upon these lessons, and without Hungary's explicit example of what to do or what not to do, he may well have done things differently. In the Romanian case, the Hungarian example provided a series of stern warnings and important changes which greatly aided that satellite's leadership. First, it eroded the respect of several Bucharest officials for the Soviet army, reinforcing their desire to see Soviet troops leave Romania. Second, the crisis brought back memories of early historical events that seemed to provide proof of Hungarian bellicosity, which the Romanian leadership used to discriminate against ethnic Hungarians in Romania. Third, the crisis aroused fears of Transylvanian irredentism, which Bucharest used again to control the population. Fourth, and finally, by incarcerating Imre Naj, Bucharest leaders could witness his suffering, which motivated them to avoid his fate. Romanian officials became more obedient, but also more perceptive, careful, and aware of events taking place in the bloc. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. What makes Hungary's case especially interesting and inspiring in comparison with East Germany, for example, which had a history of democratic activity and which had already endured its own revolt in 1953, was the absence of any actual opposition party to speak of in the country. East Germany's Walter Ulbricht stayed in place, where Matthias Rakosi and then Erno Gero could not in Hungary. Because of this, the movement necessarily developed from the grassroots. This meant that it was far less organised and more divided, and that Naj in particular was repeatedly changing his tune as the situation unfolded. But on a more positive note, the actual sincerity and raw passion expressed by the Hungarian people distinguished it from any other political act in any other satellite. This was a people's revolution in the truest sense of the word. It was, as one historian noted, 
a socialist movement fighting against a communist state. While the installment of a harsh new regime in Budapest pointed towards a resurgence of Soviet power, in reality, Khrushchev's position was anything but strong. All the years of communist acquisition had melted away over the course of a week, when given the chance, not even the workers, supposedly the party's main base, stood by the communist government. Indeed, Khrushchev had been forced to take a tour of the satellites in the first few days of November 1956, just before the final invasion of Budapest was launched. The desire to go on a campaign trail came from a position of inherent weakness. The need for self-assurance on Khrushchev's part signaled that he did not feel comfortable trusting the satellites to do the right thing. One historian has pointed out that even in Gomolka's case, the Polish leadership was not believed to be as secure as history likes to conclude. We are drawn to the fact that Khrushchev visited Poland first in his journey through the different satellites. On the surface, this was because Poland's example was the most exemplary, supposedly. But in reality and in private, Khrushchev still did not trust Vladislav Gomolka, and he was not wholly confident that the new Polish leader was capable of keeping a handle on things in Poland. To conclude on the Polish issue, Gomolka knew that he could not be too supportive of the Hungarian insurgents and simultaneously reassure Moscow of his loyalty. Poland continued to be watched over for some time by the Khrushchev clique. Gomolka's country, after all, was the Soviet land bridge to the German Democratic Republic. At the same time, Gomolka knew that the Polish Communist Party could only maintain its monopoly with the help of Soviet power, a fact which would be dangerous to actually admit in public. So reliant was Gomolka that he would sign a Polish-Soviet bilateral treaty in Moscow in mid-November 1956, which guaranteed a permanent Soviet military presence in the country. Thus, Gomolka was presented with another challenge in his public stance, for this put him in a difficult situation, as one of the Hungarian's 16 points had been the removal of Soviet troops. If Gomolka supported the Hungarian cause too demonstratively, then surely this would mean he also supported the demands within the 16 points. Would Polish citizens then pressure him to have Soviet troops withdraw from Poland? To avoid these challenges, Gomolka maintained a careful balancing act for some time, before becoming, unfortunately, a great deal more hardline in the 1960s. If the East was kept together, though, the Western leftist and communist movements sharply fractured. It was the brilliant French Marxist philosopher and ordinarily an apologist for Soviet policies, Jean-Paul Sartre, who wrote a pamphlet in response to the events in Budapest entitled The Ghost of Stalin. Therein, Sartre noted that Before Hungary, they, the Russians, were winning across the board. They looked like coming out victors in the Cold War. They were reconciling themselves with Tito and restoring unity in the socialist camp. They were extending their influence as far as India and the Middle East. In the bourgeois democracies, their cultural offensive was bearing fruit. Now, the Budapest massacres have destroyed years of effort for detente, for coexistence, for peace. Never in the West have communists found themselves so isolated. Never has their confusion been greater. The confusion and difficulties presented by Hungary only escalated after the Egyptian situation calmed down. It wasn't until June 1957 that the UN actually got around to crafting what was called the Report of the Special Commission on the Problem of Hungary. This 268-page document, which is freely accessible to this day, contains a great deal of nuggets of information on the Hungarian Revolution. 
UN observers were remarkably well informed, and the report contains details of Naj's arrest following the deception, the Soviet preparation for invasion, even before the student demonstrations began, and the then-current Qadar government's lack of popular support. This UN report noted how the popular nature of the uprising was proved by the appearance of a free press and radio and by general rejoicing among the people. It also added a damning indictment of the Qadar regime, noting that Basic human rights of the Hungarian people were violated by the Hungarian governments before 23rd of October, especially up to autumn of 1955, and such violations have been resumed since 4th of November. The numerous accounts of inhumane treatment and tortures by the AVU must be accepted as true. In an attempt to break the revolution, numbers of Hungarians, including some women, were deported to the Soviet Union, and some may not have been returned to their homes. Damning though this indictment may have been, no Soviet readers would have taken it seriously, if they ever got a copy of it at all when it was presented to them, first in New York. The United Nations had proved its unfortunate impotence when attempting to deal with not merely simultaneous crises, but also a crisis where the Soviets were heavily involved, and made extensive usage of their veto in the Security Council to block any investigation or other such act. It was the best that the United Nations could do. One of its concluding points noted limply on the nature of the violence that a massive armed intervention by one power on the territory of another with the avowed intention of interfering in its internal affairs must, by the Soviet Union's own definition of aggression, be a matter of international concern. And yet, nobody had been internationally concerned by events in Budapest. Everyone had reacted too late or not at all when the news of the Soviet invasion first broke. Dag Hammarskjöld, the Swedish Secretary General in the United Nations, was faced with the unenviable conundrum of Budapest, and would later reflect that, I did what I could, and it did not yield the results I was hoping for. That can happen in public diplomacy. It certainly happens in private diplomacy. In terms of private diplomacy, the Eisenhower administration made very little to no contribution at all to the Hungarian rebels, occupied as Eisenhower understandably was with the Suez Crisis, which exploded into the open at almost the exact same time, and with his own re-election in the first week of November, he was pretty much incommunicado when it came to Hungary. Neither Eisenhower nor John Foster Dulles, his Secretary of State, could countenance giving the Soviets any excuse to ratchet up the tensions in Europe. Indeed, while Eisenhower's pledge to roll back communism had evidently failed only a couple of days into his second term, it is hardly fair to criticise the United States for not sending soldiers to Budapest. The rising in Hungary was doomed from the very beginning, guys, and its perpetrators knew this. Those that emerged apparently victorious in late October were still blinking in this blinding light, and they were hardly able to believe their fortunes. By the time the Soviets invaded again, and yeah, they then realised what was up. Yet, that doesn't mean that Washington holds zero accountability for what occurred. Some of the more infamous accusations sent towards Eisenhower's administration was that, even while it may not have worked to actively spur the rebels on and encourage them to rebel in the first place, it also didn't work hard enough to send a clear message to its more public arms. Radio Free Europe is normally the example which is underlined when one wishes to criticise the Western reaction to the events of 1956. 
It was on that radio station that several broadcasts were put out spurring the rebels on, insisting that the Soviets could be beaten, and adding that Western help was on the way. The historian's ability to fully answer this controversy is hampered, we are reminded, by the need to classify key documents. This explains how one historian was able to note in 1958 that... One remembers the clamour which arose in this country in the wake of the Hungarian Revolution, caused by a suggestion that Radio Free Europe had somehow influenced the shooting in the streets of Budapest and had given the insurgents hope of American help. Investigations followed and, although no proof of such promises was discovered, Radio Free Europe was forced to adopt a much milder line towards communist regimes in Eastern Europe. Yet, notwithstanding these assertions, the CIA had conducted an investigation and come to an alternative conclusion. The report was concluded in late 1956, but its findings were predictably classified soon after. A founding member of Radio Free Europe, a true cold warrior by the name of William Griffith, was tasked with investigating the station's actions. He discovered that on several occasions, the station went beyond its guidelines, which were, incidentally, set by the CIA in the first place, as Radio Free Europe was quintessentially a CIA institution, in case you didn't know. Griffith did insist, though, that the violations of such guidelines happened unintentionally, and he gave the following concluding note on the debate, saying, After the revolution was well underway, a few of the scripts do indicate that Radio Free Europe occasionally went beyond the authorised factual reports to provide tactical advice to the patriots to the course that the rebellion should take, and the individuals best qualified to lead it. As soon as these deviations from policy were noted, steps were taken to impose rigid supervision of broadcasting content. Radio Free Europe did not incite the Hungarian people to revolution. This was the result of ten years of Soviet oppression. Indeed, the latter point is true in that Hungary would have risen up against Moscow regardless of what Radio Free Europe had said. However, it must be emphasised that in this question, which remains a somewhat controversial one to this day, advice, instructions and impressions were given which did lead the Hungarian insurgents astray, and which encouraged many to engage in hopeless battles out of the expectation that Washington, or at least the United Nations, would come to their rescue. When a thousand Hungarian refugees were polled by American academics in the years that followed, some 96% believed that foreign radio broadcasts had led them to believe that help would come from the West. Many of those polled were academics, and one such Hungarian figure, who later became a professor of literature at an American university, would note with some bitterness that Our heart was in the right place. The trouble was we imagined the West had similar feelings towards us, would reciprocate our confessions of love. This probably foolish notion was greatly strengthened by the slogans and propaganda of the United States. They talked of liberation and rolling back of Soviet domination. Since then we learned what we didn't know, that the West had written off these countries, and only their propaganda machines pretended otherwise. Richard Nixon, who was vice president at the time, would also weigh in on the issue when he noted in early December 1956 that The United Nations has no armies that it could send to rescue the heroic freedom fighters of Hungary. There were no treaties that would invoke the armed resistance of the free nations. Our only weapon here was moral condemnation, since the alternative was action on our part, which might initiate the third and ultimate world war. If the vice president and his president had no intentions of waging a third or ultimate world war, 
Budapest and the events in Poland in 1956 had taught Washington of the need to be better prepared to take advantage of the Soviet difficulties. Indeed, for the next few months, and in the strictest of secrecy, the historian John D. Marchio noted that Secret military planning had been ongoing and would continue for the next six months to determine the feasibility of using military force, as well as other means, to prevent or halt a Soviet invasion of Poland. 1956 had been a year of harsh lessons and frustrating developments for American foreign policy, as the Anglo-French adventure in Suez, combined with the Soviet aggression in their satellites, significantly damaged the notion that Moscow would be less bombastic or less forceful in their foreign policy, now that Stalin was gone. Of course, the Soviets would argue that neither Hungary nor Poland were topics for foreign policy, and were instead issues relating to the internal and domestic security of the Soviet Union, and were, in short, none of Washington's business. Yet, just as surely as Moscow had used the communist parties in Western Europe, and no shortage of prolific British and American spies to conduct its espionage, so too did the United States see the utility in weakening Moscow in its own backyard. A little over a decade since the foreign ministers of the Big Four first sat down to discuss the post-war arrangements, it was more evident than ever before that the Cold War reigned supreme. Hungary, Poland and Khrushchev's secret speech itself were all symptoms of this conflict, as the Soviet Union sought to deal with the problems posed by its past for the sake of ensuring its future readiness to meet the challenges posed by the capitalist-imperialist system. At the heart of this conflict, as the events of Warsaw and Budapest remind us, were the lost lives and crushed dreams of those that this Cold War had caught in the middle. Next time, don't get too glum, because we're taking our narrative back a bit, as we begin Phase 2 of 1956, and begin our examination of the events which led up to the Suez Crisis. Oh boy, I'm really looking forward to this, so I hope you'll join me for that. And if you're curious and eager for some more closure on the topic, make sure and check out the conclusion for this first phase that we'll be releasing next week. Until then, though, my name is Zach, you are a lovely patron, and you've been listening to 1956, Part 1, Episode 15. Thanks for listening, guys, and I'll be seeing you all soon.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 